Welcome to the Debutiful Podcast Feed. This is the first taste reading series where each week I invite an author to read from their new book and answer a few short questions. You can find Debutiful on the internet at debutiful.net and on all social media at Debutiful. Today's guest is a book publicist and writer. She currently lives in Brooklyn with her cat, and her work has appeared in the Washington Post, BuzzFeed, Electric Literature, The Millions, and elsewhere. Her first book, Lesbian Love Story, is out now. Please welcome Amelia Pazanza. Hey, Amelia. How are you doing today? It will not stop raining here in Brooklyn, yes. but I'm trying not to let it bring you down. Mm-hmm. I love the rain. Maybe it's because I don't get a lot of rain. Fair. Yeah, it's just bringing me down. Yeah. <laughs> I'm well, sitting next to a, a lamp. Yeah. Getting, getting the fake sun. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, I'm so excited to finally talk to you, like not via email. Um, one, to finally talk about your amazing book, Lesbian Love Story. Uh, but I also you you have helped me so much as a publicist in another in your other life, not yeah. as an author. And I just want to thank you for all the work you do because I don't think publicists get enough thank you. So thank you for doing what you do for the authors you represent on that side of your your life. I yeah, I appreciate that. And I actually don't I through this process, I've started to see the two sides as actually not that different. Mm-hmm. Like it's after the book came out, I realized that it's mainly me celebrating and telling other people's stories Mm -hmm. and being a publicist for lesbians who did not ask me to who did not always write a book um but yeah it was funny to realize at the end that those two jobs are not as different being a writer being a publicist yeah as I originally thought they were for sure and and your book came out a while ago at this point a lesbian love story tell readers who may not have discovered it yet what this is because it's a very unique very amazing but yeah i'll turn it over to you as a as a publicist for lesbians um it is my sort of journey into the archives to discover some of the lesbian stories that i wasn't told growing up coming of age in the 90s it is in the end i found well i found so many stories but in the end i picked seven of them to write about and they're not necessarily like famous people it's not like here's Emily Dickinson and here's Eleanor Roosevelt and here's how like no one knew that they were ever gay I think there's a lot of that reclamation happening and that's great Um, but for my project I was much more interested in like what did it look like when someone defied the expectations of heterosexual norms and decided to live life on their own terms and that the lives sort of span the 20th century the very first one is like in the book is mary casal who lived around the turn of the century and it goes all the way through the 80s and the aids crisis and i kind of like to think of myself as bridging the gap between you know the 80s and now Mm -hmm. with stories from my own life definitely and uh so many questions to ask you but i will turn it over to you to read Uh, what part of lesbian love story will you be reading for us today since I mentioned that Mary Casal is, you know, the star of the first chapter, she was the first, you know, lesbian story that I discovered in my research. And she was really the inspiration for a lot of this book. It feels only right to just take things off with her story. And also before I start reading, I'll say that, you know, I felt like traditional history 
did not do a good job of telling lesbian stories. So I tried to do history in my own, maybe lesbian, maybe sapphic way um, and took some liberties to imagine some pieces of her story. And I try and let the reader know that, um, but just you won't be able to see sort of what's italicized on the page and what actually comes from her memoir, but I hope you'll be able to hear it. She sounds very Victorian. <laughs> yes, yes, we'll take it away. In the high heat of July, 1892, a woman traveling alone on business ducks into New York City's YWCA Hotel on 16th Street between 5th and 6th Avenues. Her attire is unusual for a woman, a skirt paired with a man's shirt, a tie, and a dark fedora to top it all off. For the better part of a year, she has traveled the country this way, in a circle of towns whose radius expands ever outward from her home in New England, selling a small children's toy of her own invention, made out of paper on which businesses could buy advertisements. Now she had come to the great city to take a meeting with a big department store in the hopes of securing her largest contract yet, to the tune of 100,000 toys. The lobby of the little hotel is stuffy and overfull with the three women stationed there. The matronly one behind the desk, the respectable Christian lady already waiting in line for a room, and tucked away in a corner, a young woman perched on a stool, bent over like a wilted lily. She is weeping. The newcomer is struck not by the girl's crying, but by her hands, poised as if to catch her tears. The most beautiful hands, as she would later describe them in her memoir, she has ever seen. What are your wishes? I imagine a voice from behind the desk that interrupts the newcomer's reverie. Excuse me, she might reply. She wishes to kiss those hands. How can I help you? Please comfort that girl, she wants to say. I'd like a room, is all I imagine she can muster. The proprietor, fat, forty, and unfair, Mary remembered, looks her potential customer up and down. Name, Casal, Mary Casal. You can only engage a room for one night at a time. Mary never recorded the proprietor's exact words, but I can almost hear her stern tone. We'll see how I like you. No smoking, no drinking, no cursing, no bringing men around. Curfew's at 10. We'll lock up, and if you aren't inside, well, you'd better ask forgiveness from the Lord and find somewhere else to sleep. Mary meets the proprietor's standards and is led up to her room. She sits on the bed and places the hat down beside her. It is too warm and the walls are covered with admonishments from Christ himself, expensively printed and framed. But Mary is kept awake that night by something else entirely, the memory of those exquisite hands. What had brought the girls, what, what had brought the girl to tears, Mary wonders. Was the matron of this stifling hotel too mean to even comfort a crying girl at her bosom? Mary passes an uncomfortable night. She wakes from fitful gasps of sleep with the certainty that she needs to stay in this stuffy hotel. She marches down to the front desk. Seated behind it is the woman with the shining eyes, a kind face, and the most exquisite hands she had ever seen. Something tells Mary that here is the girl of her dreams. Mary hadn't been looking. The girl just came into her life and she knew I hadn't been looking for Mary either. She just came into my life. Cool. Thank you so much, Amelia, for reading uh, from Lesmila's story. I guess my first question is going to be why look through archives? Why write this sort of book? 
I read this amazing quote, actually, after I finished writing the book that did a much better job describing it than I ever could. And it said something along the lines of, you know, queer people feel this intense loneliness and they're looking for community in the present day. And I think there's a lot of talk these days about chosen family and different ways to create a family. But then the quote finished by saying, and we also as queer people look for community in history. There's this historical loneliness too of like, okay, when were there people like me? How did they build their lives? What kind of role models and examples do I have for how to live a life outside of, okay, I'm going to get married. I'm going to have children and, you know, I'm just going to get on that track and keep going. And I love that quote because I definitely think this book came from that place and that question of, okay, I have my people here in this life, but who are the people who came before me who like paved the way for me to live this life and who could inspire me and sort of teach me lessons about how to live a life that's not, you know, career, marriage, children, deathbed what are, what are the other narrative arcs out there yeah i i love books like this that bend the way i think about what a book can do um there's so many that i'm blanking on but like wolfish by erica berry's one of them from this year um Jen Chaplin's first book, which whose title I'm forgetting. I, I can't believe I'm blanking. My on it, autobiography of Carson McCullough is a huge, you. huge inspiration for me. Yeah. And like those two books, I mean, Wolfish is very different. It's about wolves and womanhood, <laughs> but like Carson, the my autobiography of Carson McCullough's, yes, very much reminded me of your book and vice versa. But um, but I want to go back actually before I dive more into your book because I am curious. Your bio says I'm a full-time publicist, a part-time writer. What is your writing background? How did you get into this world? Well, I've always, I mean, like everyone, I'm sure everyone who works in publishing will say sort of I've always loved reading mm-hmm. and I've always loved writing. And for me, those two go hand in hand because I also think that my book is a book about reading, you know, mm-hmm. like literally the opening of the first chapter is like I am reading Mary Casal's memoir. And here I am reacting to it, sort of presenting it in a different way than she could. So for me, reading and writing are so, so inextricable. Um, And I come from a very kind of nerdy, story-focused family. For a long time, my mom was a school librarian and she taught oral storytelling. And in my house behind sort of my seat at the dining room table was this little library card catalog from the analog days with all the little index cards with books on them. And I feel like the suggestion that was like, anything you want to find is here in this like piece of furniture, anything you want to know about. Um, and my dad is a classic scholar. So mm-hmm. you know, teaching some very ancient stories. So it just felt like natural in my oh, house. Definitely. Do you remember ever reading anything like your book or my autobiography of Carson McCullers or whatever, where it was like breaking the mold of what books can do. Like when's the first time you remember being like, Oh, that's why that books can do something like this. Yeah. That's such a good question. I honestly don't remember off the top of my head. I mean, I think for a lot of people like Maggie Nelson's Argonauts really like blew our collective minds of like, Oh, sort of, you know, 
academia and queer theory doesn't need to just be in a dry essay. It doesn't need to be inaccessible. It can be really personal. Mm -hmm. Um, So that definitely stands out for me. And I would imagine for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, As I was asking the question, I really, uh, as wide read as I am, I guess you can say, because of what I do, I'm trying to think of like books like that fit under this umbrella. And it was like, I was blanking. That's why. So that's why I asked. Um, You also write, like you've written a few essays, criticism. I, I'm I'm now just looking. I have like I always have a website pulled up, and you actually wrote about um, Jen Chaplin's book uh, for the Rumpus, uh, Melissa Broder's The Pisces, which is one of my favorite books. Um, <laughs> do you still have a lot of time to do that within your publishing? Do you have time to, or as a publicist, do you have time to, you know, explore your other writing outside of lesbian love story and outside of your publicity work? I think that publishing a book took up more of my time than I imagined, which feels very silly to say because it's literally my job to help other people publish their books. So I should know. Mm -hmm. Um, So things have definitely been on pause for the moment. And, you know, lately I've been very interested in trying to write criticism about sort of old and forgotten Mm -hmm. books. And I haven't yet figured out what the place of that is and sort of the current ecosystem that is so driven by like what's next, what's new, um, you know, what are the most anticipated books, not what are the books from a hundred years ago that we've all forgotten about, but could stand to revisit. Yeah, definitely. I do not read anything old anymore. And some of that's, I I really dislike that kind of, but that's kind of where I'm at in life right now. I can't imagine how you would have time for anything old when, you know, you've got this very specific focus on debuts. Yeah, I, I, debuts. Pigeonholed, yep. <laughs> I pigeonholed myself into like a very niche reading habit. Uh, and the other bad thing about it is like, I sometimes can't even, t- I, I can talk about the books, but they come out like six months from now sometimes that it's like, who am I talking to about with this book? <laughs> who is there to talk to me about this <laughs> Yeah. That is a very familiar feeling. Yeah. Um, you mentioned like you were sh- not, sh- yeah, you were shocked on how long it took and you shouldn't have been because, you know, you help writers. This is your your wheelhouse. What was like the learning curve like to write a full length work? Uh, what, yeah. Like what were you shocked to learn? What, how did you grow? Just talk about that experience. I think I never admitted to myself until I was very far along that it was going to be a book because that would have been too intimidating. And I think the format of it kind of lent itself to deluding myself. <laughs> like mm-hmm. each chapter is about a different lesbian in history. So I was like, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm thinking about Mabel Hampton now. Oh, I'm thinking about Babe Diedrichsen. I don't have to think yet about how they go together. And then when I got an editor, my editor was Mega Majumdar, mm-hmm. author of A Burning, who I just like cannot sing her praises enough because I think she came in and sort of suggested things that I never could have imagined on my own that I think actually made it more of a book instead of just these standalone pieces of like you know asking me how I could bring some of these characters through into later chapters like I mainly talk about Mabel Hampton's life in the 20s and the Harlem Renaissance and everything that was going on at that time but like when World War II rolls around she's still alive and she's participating. And, you know, my focus then is on someone else. Um, But it's like, okay, how can I bring her back in? 
And she suggested things like rearranging chapters to not be in chronological order. Um, so I really think that it was in talking to her and having her sort of talk about making these big moves and changes that I was like, oh, it's a whole thing on its own that's taking on a life. And I think that's the part that I couldn't have imagined. Like by the time I was making these changes, they were changes that I like wouldn't have been able to see at the beginning of the process. It wasn't like, oh, let me change this sentence here or let me like rearrange these paragraphs. It was like, it became this big thing that felt like it was alive on its own. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm curious, just, you know, being a publicist, uh, like being on the other side of the publicity side of things, how did, how did, were you able to step back and just be like, you know, catapult team to your stuff? Or were you like, yeah, just talk about that experience. For sure. I mean, maybe someone from Catapult will write in and, um, you know, <laughs> offer their side of the story. But it felt really nice to step back and be like, please, someone else take this. I think, you know, because I do it for work, I don't have that much energy outside of work hours to continue doing it. And I think I want to spend those hours getting back to the writing. Mm -hmm. uh, and going back to Jen Chaplin, I was at her event for her new book here in New York. And she said the most amazing thing that like, when she said it felt so obvious, but I'd never been able to put words to. And I think that's often what like the best writers do. I'm like, oh, duh, I should have known that, but I never could have articulated it. And she's talking about how sort of like writing is so different than, um, you know, like publicizing a book. And if you were like an artist in the seventies, you probably didn't have to contend with like, what is your social media image? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What, you know, what Instagram live are you going to go on next? And so she was talking about how like she can write in her PJs and be totally solitary and lost in her mind palace. And then she has to shift gears to like, talking about the book and traveling and like, you know, putting on real outfits. And that really like hit the nail on the head for me because I was like, oh, I, I did really enjoy writing. I did a lot of the writing during the pandemic when yeah. it felt even more important to have this kind of like imaginary community of dead people yeah. <laughs> surrounding me, offering me advice. Like I couldn't go sit at Ginger's, the lesbian bar in Brooklyn, but I could sort of sit with these stories. Um, and I think she also made me realize that um, it's often easier to advocate for someone else than for yourself. You know, like mm -hmm. in my job, I'm like, hey, read this someone else's book that I really love. Yeah. Um, talk to this author who I think has great insights on this topic. But I don't think it's so much harder for all of us, I think, to do that for ourselves. I didn't feel comfortable stepping in and being like, read my book. It's really yeah. great. That's sort of like a different kind of work or personality or both. Yeah, it is so interesting. I, you know, all I do is say, hey, read these books. And yeah. I talked, um, I like, I push like, oh, read Amelia's book, read Jen's book, et cetera, et cetera. And recently I've been like, maybe I should like try to get on podcasts for Adam for Day Beautiful and try to get some coverage. And and I just remember, I was like, I don't even know how to do this. Like I could publish, I could, I could be a publicist for so many other people, but myself, it's like, so weird and uh, so I just like put it out on Twitter I was like anyone want to interview me <laughs> like so uh, like an awkward turtle and uh, it ended up working out like yeah you've uh, gotten you know, some I was yeah. gonna I notice I look at these things you've gotten some great press lately yeah it's, it's been interesting um definitely um what do you what 
I usually end and you know, the first taste reading series is shorter and I usually end with like, what are you reading? So I'm going to ask it in like two forms. Uh, if I can, what are you, what are you, Amelia, the human vibing? What are you reading with? But also I am curious, like for your job, like talk to those, what are those books deep in the future that you can't even, or if you can talk about them, but like, what are you like excited about to get me excited about for like 2024? Yeah. Um, well, what I just finished reading was another catapult book. I keep my exoskeletons to myself oh. by Matt Crane. Mm. And that just blew me away. Because I think my number one pet peeve when I read fiction is when someone's like really laboring over making beautiful sentences and you can see the labor. And I think that book felt so effortless and it mm -hmm. felt like someone was talking to me, but it was still like so beautiful and so dark and so sad. I imagine that they were... A maybe a guest on your podcast they weren't on the pod but i they were the reason now day beautiful does a monthly excerpt on the uh, website because i was like i fucking love the writing and uh yeah, yeah i keep my exoskeletons myself 100 like a book of the year for day beautiful like bar nut i mean uh, beautiful i loved it yeah yeah well and i feel like now as a publicist i should tell everyone what it's about it's oh, yeah. a woman in a near future world where if you commit a crime or harm someone, you get an extra shadow and you can get lots of extra shadows. You could have like seven and it's a way of shaming people. It's a way of like exploring prison abolition. And then this woman has a young daughter who's actually born with an extra shadow because the other mother dies in labor. So this kid does not like have this shame given to them they're like literally born with it and it's the two of them navigating grief navigating the world it's about so many things um yeah. but yeah really blown away loved it for jealous. sure what else, what else that's have the you best feeling it's like when i finish the yeah. book, I'm like, man so good i'm so jealous <laughs> i know i don't have that feeling so i don't write fiction uh <laughs> but yeah i'm just like i love being blown away and just be like oh that's what a book can do to me <laughs> right now and then on the work side of things, I feel like 2024 is going to be the year that I make everyone talk about periods. Like it is time, people. I yes. feel like that is one of the last taboos. Like why are we talking about abortion every day and not periods? We're talking about like menopause now. There are like sort of menopause movies. Um, and we're actually publishing two different books about periods in 2024. The first one is called The Cycle. And again, it's kind of in this trend of part of its memoir about this journalist who like, once every month after being kind of like organized, measured, calm, kind, we're just getting these explosive fights with her boyfriend. Couldn't figure out why I would be very ashamed afterwards. And then realized like, oh, I think it took her several years to be diagnosed with something called PMDD, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, um, which is people who have, I mean, it's kind of a severe form of PMS, People are doing more research into it and think that you're like the body's actually having an almost allergic reaction to wow. hormones that are naturally released during the menstrual cycle. But she kind of uses her own experience to write about this underdiagnosed disorder to sort of track how like it actually didn't help the feminist movement that much to talk about periods. Right. There's this push pull between like, oh, we should normalize it. We should talk about it. But we also don't want people to think people who menstruate are less than mm -hmm. um, she delves into that stigma and taboo. And it's just, I'm really amazed that she did like hundreds of interviews, but also talks about like these really dark moments in her own life. And I love how she combines those. It's like a very rigorously reported, but like emotionally vulnerable oh. 
suck. Yeah. And then the other one is just sort of like more straightforward advice from a gynecologist called it's not hysteria. But even to me, that feels groundbreaking because I'm like, that resource doesn't exist. You know, like there's a lot of books about pregnancy and, but you know, like, and so many people in my life have some sort of issue, whether it's like endometriosis or this or that. Um, So I'm excited. (laughs) And I love speaking of books that I love Chloe Caldwell's, um, the red zone, a love story hmm. was also kind of, I felt like kicking off this wave. Of well, this is the new the wave in nonfiction. Of periods. Yes. Oh yeah. No, I love that. I, uh, in my twenties, uh, my sister and I were housemates and she just was like, she had like a nice vase in our bathroom with all of her tampons. And she's like, I'm not hiding anything. This is yeah. uh, why, like, why are we ashamed? I was like, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't care. You know? Well, a lot, a lot of my friends are gay men uh, who were another inspiration for the book. Um, for being like, guys, this is what you should know. And sometimes I like have to cancel plans with them because I have really bad cramps. Yeah. And sometimes I'm still ashamed to say that because I'm like, these guys know nothing <laughs> yeah. about periods. This is outside their realm of experience. Thank you so much to Amelia for joining the Day Beautiful First Taste Reading Series to read from her debut book, Lesbian Love Story. You can find her on the internet at ameliapazanza.com on Twitter at Amelia Pizanza and on Instagram at A Pizanza. You can find Day Beautiful at DayBeautiful.net and on all social media at Day Beautiful. And as always, I'm Adam. This is Day Beautiful. And you're all beautiful. <laughs>